Welcome to another edition of Hit The Lights Plus. I've got Peter with me again. How are we? All right, Gary. Thanks for having me back. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. We're going to be uh, pushing you a little bit out of your comfort zone today. We're going to be talking industrial. Oh, looking forward to that. Yeah, that's it. Always push me beyond my limits. Bearing in mind, I'm just a, a humble domestic sparks. You know, we we don't do anything hard or beyond the uh, capabilities of your humble painter and decorator. <laughs> well, we can hope to educate today then, can't we? Um, I'm here to learn. So today, really, we're going to kind of be delving into a little bit of the uh, the stuff that I've done in my background, and that's going to be mica. So in terms of mica, we're talking mechanical, electrical, instrumentation, control, and automation. So really, we're just going to kind of give a bit of an overview of some of the equipment, the instruments, how signaling works, um, some of the panel arrangements that you can have, really, and just kind of talk through a basic installation so that if you were to walk into a even a semi-commercial environment and look at certain arrangements, you might have some understanding of, of what you're looking at. Well, we, we can only try. We could try. So probably a good place to start is panels. There are obviously... Um, many different types of panels and the british standard for it is 61439 and typically in there you'll have four types of panels now would you have any idea as to what provides the definitions of those different types of panels i wouldn't have a clue right okay so we'll start from the basics then so we have different forms so when you have a different form Essentially, what we're talking about is the separation or degrees of separation between buzz bars and components. And as you go through various different stages of the forms, the internal components will be further separated and removed from LV to extra low voltage. Essentially, we'll start with the form one, and that is where you would have no separation between functional or power equipment, including buzz bars. So what does that actually mean? So are you, are you fairly familiar with uh, commercial industrial panels? No. Right. So when you have an incomer, typically what you'll have is, say, your DNO, a large supply coming into a panel. It'll go into a main switch in a similar way of, uh, you know, a consumer unit. But then instead of um, going straight to protective devices in, in a similar way, actually, to the consumer unit, you'll have your live probably uh, three we'll assume three phase your three phases are neutral as bars across the top of the panel or potentially the bottom as a buzz bar chamber and from there it will tap off using like tri-rated cabling or something of that nature to fuse switches at various arrangements and sizes okay so what you typically have then is some degree of separation so typically what we're talking about is compact compartmentalizing it's a long word between fire ratings of each uh, section so is this similar to like segregation of band one band two cabling kind of yeah so what we're really talking about is just enclosing the risk so that'll be enclosing the buzz bar enclosing the incoming main switch enclosing the fuse switches that come off of that and what they'll do is they'll go through sealed entries into different compartments of the yeah. panel and what that's what we're really talking about so in a form one there would be no um compartments so it, you'd open the doors and everything would be there in front of you okay would that be like a low level panel or would there be a different sort of environment you would fit that well it can be any size all of these can be any size any height um typically like within the water industry there'll be set heights that you have to have user interface equipment so where you'd have a uh, a human interface which is like a, a screen you know a touch screen on on the panel that would have to say be 1.4 meters high so that it's usable for everyone in a similar way you would mount a socket at a set height yeah so for think for screens in my understanding part ends i think it's 12 to 1400 yeah so typically we would mount at 1400 mm -hmm. but yeah so that, that's form one so inside form one no segregation so form two there would be some uh internal separation um and you can get various types which would be your your 2a your 2b and your different classifications and stuff like that 
So what you'd end up actually doing is having some level of, of internal separation. So you might have LV on one side and you might keep the L, uh, extra low voltage to the other side. Right. OK. And what's the idea of this compartmentation? Sorry. It's typically going to be for user um, end user management of the of the panel. So, you know, potentially you want to not have to open. You could compartment. I'm never going to get that fucking word right. You could section it. <laughs> That's staying. <laughs> yeah. You could section it um, so that the left-hand side would be all LV. The right-hand side of the panel is all extra low voltage. And then you would only need to enter the right-hand side. Yeah. So what you're saying is when the user finally comes around to using it, they can perhaps change around themselves on the ELV side, but then they're protected from the LV. Yeah. Exactly, and that would be the that would be the idea. You know, you don't want to be switching on large circuits with with load on it, and suddenly, you know, you've got no, nothing in between you and the controls and the power. Yeah, I'm with you. So uh, basically, form three takes it one step further and segregates the buzz bars, but incoming and outgoing circuits are still not separated. And then in form four would be. You, uh, internal separation of everything so that would be incomers separated buzz bars separated and all your fuse switches are separated so i think typically most commercial and industrial panels you will see are likely to be form four and except where you tend to see con control panels or icas as we call them it would be a form two typically so could you say a domestic consumer unit would be a form one Yes, there is no internal separation between anything functional or the buzz bar. I'm just trying to think of ways to relate this to my domestic understanding. Yeah, no, no, I would go with that. I'd go with that. So just just to re-reference it, it's BS61439. Go, go and check that out. And what's there's the a, heading of that? Sorry, the BS61439 is... LV switch gear. Right. And then you've also got preceding that, when you receive any sort of enc empty enclosure or, or anything like that, um, it would have to comply to BS62208 uh, for empty enclosures. And that basically sets the standard that it has to meet, you know, voltage requirements, fire rating, temperature operation, all that sort of thing for the components that would potentially go inside of it. Yeah, that's fair enough. You'll say if you can have some switch gear in a box, can it handle the heat and stuff? Yeah, exactly. Is it designed to contain that sort of equipment? Yeah, exactly. So moving on from that, then the typically would have an ICA. That would be a form two panel in there. We would have hang a on, hang on. no, no, I'm what? going quick. No, <laughs> no, you know, I don't. What is an ICA? An ICA is same, same as we defined it before. Instrumentation control and automation panel. Yeah, I was going to say that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it was. So basically in, in there. We would hold, you know, anything from relays to contactors um, to various bits of kit that we wanted to control. And typically you would find a PLC, which is going to we can refer to that as the brain um, that's going to be have the computer processor on board and it would allow for the digital ins and outs of signals. Yeah, your hands up. Yeah, Go on. What's a PLC? So a PLC is a programmable logic controller is that when you hear people saying are you logic trained yeah i suppose context might come into play but yes logic is is part of it so you typically would have ladder logic um, as a basic thing so there's lots of very cheap plcs that you can buy out out there that give you a certain number um, of outputs and inputs that you could potentially use to play around with um, that gives some very good basic software to teach. I know Schneider do a few good ones um, as well as uh, I can't remember some of the other companies, but yeah, so there's definitely so a, a, is a PLC, a physical thing. A PLC is a physical thing. It will typically have an extra low voltage supply onto right. it. It will have relays that will allow input signals onto it. It'll work some sort of controls as part of the ladder, lo ladder logic that you set as to how you want the system that you're so controlling. So you to program operate. the PLC? Yes, you do. 
So how do you link to that? Is there like a, an Ethernet lead or something? Or do you have to download something onto it? Is it USB? All different manufacturers come differently. But typically, yes, you'll have like an RJ45 or a USB connection onto the front. Some have serial if it's particularly old. Um, you know, the RS232 sort of connection. Yeah. And basically, yeah, you'll you'll sit there, you'll program it how you want. And what you'll essentially get is two lines down the page, the left-hand side being one, the right-hand side being zero. So you could almost think of it as li- live and neutral almost. Mm-hmm. And you get your power from one side, you'll drag it through like a contactor symbol. You uh, may link it to the coil. You may link it to another couple of – these are all internal uh, PLC they're not real components, by the way. I'm talking about the the actual ladder logic itself. So, right, so as part can, of the software, you input these processes. Yeah, so to make it easy for people like myself, they've put in symbols for everyday stuff that we would use. So you can just essentially do relays, timers, all, so, all sorts of things in the ladder logic to create the function that you want to do. So, you know, like a typical example that um, I learned at college was uh, doing traffic light systems so say you've got a four-way crossing that'll be uh, utilizing a, a, a plc and all it'll be doing is just loads of different timers different switches and it'll just be crossing them over so that various things like you can't have two on at one time so it'll do like and or sort of things you know um blocks like that yeah that's no, when you say like that i've vaguely remember doing something like that at school an it Mm-hmm. just do a small like you say traffic light sequence that that's basically that in a, in a kind of nutshell so just PLC. sorry just last question Go on, so if i'm doing this on the computer let's say and i'm doing my ladder logic you, you say you put in contactors and that so am i basically saying if this is energized i want you to switch that and yes. it does it all on the software obviously yeah so you have real world inputs and outputs you can take a real world input switch it through as many sequences internally as you like and then switch a real world output yeah so let's say you you have one input and four outputs you can switch the separate outputs depending on what you did in the programming yeah exactly so a, a, a basic example would be suggest say you've got a car park of lights somebody triggers a pir at one end and you want all the lights to come on and each section of lights is controlled by an output on the relay but in this instance on that pir being triggered you want all the lights to come on you'll receive one physical real world input you can then control that internally through the ladder logic to get eight or however many you want real world outputs for all those lights to come on yes you could use that switch line effectively to turn on a load of contactors yeah exactly that's the kind of basic principles really you obviously plcs can get very complicated with the systems they control and typically you know input output signals will will go to relays and and those will just be volt free contacts into the field so one thing we do in the water industry is always making sure we have a degree of separation between what field connections come in to not actually be directly connected onto a PLC so that there's, it doesn't present any danger to the PLC. Right. Okay. Um, I do have a question, which I think would be good, is can you define what a volt-free contact actually is? So it's when there is no electrical connection between two voltages. So you can trigger... So a relay is a great um, example. It'll just be... Say you've got a 24-volt DC coil on the relay itself, but it'll be switching through 230-volt. So you'll energize the coil, the relay will tick over and close, and that will allow the 230-volt to go wherever it needed to go as part of the control circuit. So it's just that degree of separation between the voltages. Yeah, I must admit, my experience with a volt-free contact is normally with boiler control wiring. Yeah, Um, Obviously, you can use a ELV signal or a low voltage signal. Yep. As you said, it only operates a coil. It's not voltage dependent, yep. and it, it will then switch the coil to energize the boiler. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's basically it. I mean, in terms of the sorts of plant, you know, that you're going to want to be controlling in terms of like 
relays and inputs outputs of plcs typically the sort of stuff i do is valves you know controlling water water process and dosing and stuff like that but i think building management systems will use plcs as well so you'll have dampers aircon and fire dampers as well being a primary example would that be a good solution let's say um like when a fire alarm goes off and then it alerts the sprinkler system yeah so so a fire alarm panel will typically come with output signals so usually you can have a couple of signals associated with them that can either go in or out and it's the same principle with as, as input outputs you take that signal and you can send that to any sort of system if you took the say a fire signal put it into your plc that would then tell all the dampers to shut in the event of a fire yeah, and because it's vault free you can use the vault free contact and that would sorry it's not vault free because it would be an elv auxiliary output perhaps yes you could then switch your relays internally with that yeah exactly and then you can say with the plc you would then be able to like unlock all the doors if there was any security on the on the place you know all the dampers would shut the alarms would sound it's just all those sorts of things that can extrapolate out it you know yeah a good way to sort of like third party integrate all the other systems together so if there's not a central brain as such that's what the plc is for yeah exactly and building management systems typically do that okay that's a nice way to relate it to something even i can understand (laughs) so there's obviously different types of signals that we'll have we've got the digitals and the analogs so typically a digital is as we kind of said before it's a one or a zero Um, it's just literally a state of a device now that could be from you know the reading on a damper being open or closed it could be a state of a valve being opened or closed it could be anything your your heart desires that is measurable by a one or a zero the other aspect of that which is slightly more complex is the analog um, element of signals so typically what you'd have then when i say analog signals is we're talking a value so say you want to measure a level uh, in a in a chamber or you know um typically i measure water levels there are obviously lots of different instruments that can do that but the signal type will typically be a 0 to 10 volts or a 4 to 20 milliamps signal and what you would do is say you got a reading of 8 milliamps you can then assume that that's that tank for example is 25 percent full because it's a quarter of the signal yeah so it'd be um proportional exactly and that, that's all it is and same with the 0 to 10 if it was 6.5 volts you know on on the signal you know it's 65 percent full or whatever the, the case may be for whatever you're doing yeah so from what i've taken from that digital is yes or it's no whereas analog gives you a much more accurate reading yeah exactly typically what we use it for is we'll measure a process um you, you might even use it for um an alarm state so you know if a level keeps increasing typically you know level level instruments will, will have alarm states as well as hardwired digitals as well so typically you'll use both in tandem so what we do in the water industry is use analog to measure the level and then we'll have hardwired backup say a, a level switch or a float mm-hmm. that will sit at a high high level or a low low level and they'll alarm in case the analog stops working yeah as a, like a fail safe exactly yeah and that might be to control pumps it might be to control various things that we might might use yeah i mean the way i'm sort of saying it, it's like a flow rate so let's say you've got a well and you've got a constant flow of water beneath it if you were using a digital if it went above let's say 70 percent you would say right open gate and it would take it the level back down yep. until it got to like 30 then it could close but if you're using an analog you could then perhaps proportionally open and shut a gate to suit the water level to maintain it yeah so uh, probably a good example we do is run you, you've hit the nail on the head but it would be uh like say running a pump at a set speed to ensure that the level was maintained you don't want it constantly going up and down and varying too much like you say you can set the pump speed and that we would do that through an analog yeah 
So, yeah, so there's obviously lots of different instruments, like you say, that can measure flow rate level. So we have flow meters. We've got um, ultrasonics. Um, one of the things that uh, we're doing on Tideway is radar. So we've obviously got different methods of actually measuring the medium that we're measuring. So typically ultrasonics aren't great for thick medium. So that obviously it's got to have a, a viscosity to it so when uh, ultrasonics typically will hit a surface of water it will reflect the sonar back mm -hmm. up to the device and it's that time and distance that is being measured whereas a radar will go through the medium and it's the set point is always to the bottom of the chamber not to the top of the medium so an sense. ultrasonic would be good for water but bad for marmite Exactly. I don't know why Marmite, but okay. <laughs> treacle. Oh, treacle, yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, and like like you say, you've got various different bits of kit. So it's reliant on the reflection of what it's measuring. So we're saying sand is more viscous than water. Correct. So what would be the better ultrasonics or radar? Radar is the better. Radar for more viscous, ultrasonics for lighter. So I would suggest radar for everything now with technology and how it's moving. So ra radar can do water absolutely fine. Okay. So it's it's the better application. So what you're saying, technology's moved on, radar's the way forward, ultrasonics are a bit old hat. They are. Um, lots of people are ingrained into using what they know. So what is the con? Sorry, just to... So yeah, so it's a good point. The, the cons with ultrasonics... Are you can get dead band zones um, under the instruments. Go on. So under say 100 millimeters from the head of the actual instrument that's measuring, that that'll be a dead zone to the instrument, whereas a radar can read all the way back to itself. If that makes sense. Way to. No, sorry. Why would it matter if there was a dead zone? What is the problem caused? Is it accuracy of reading? So what if, say, uh, a chamber that you're measuring fills to a certain height and it goes into that zone? You don't know what the height is anymore. From my personal understanding, I would say that sounds like a bad design. It's not a bad design. It's just the capability of the instrument. If you never, Surely it should be above the level. Well, yes, it should. And this is why typically it's not really an issue, but it's just a, a con um, associated with them. There are lots of pros. You know, they're a lot cheaper than radar and or certainly have been in the past. I don't know if that's necessarily true anymore. But uh, like so, uh, a good example, if, say, condensation was to form on a cobweb under an ultrasonic, it would then not be able to read and it would read the level of the cobweb and give you false readings. OK, fair enough. You also get loss of echo and stuff like that as well as issues when it doesn't get any adequate reflection back radar yeah i think radar is good is there any other options or is it just ultrasonics and radar no you can get laser it's not something i've ever dealt with um i mean that sounds like a winner for me anything with a laser in it they won't make a great laser um, yeah, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll go for the laser yeah, yeah well it's 10 grand more it's, we're using the laser <laughs> but yeah so i mean really that's probably um that's probably it in a nutshell, to be perfectly honest. With these PLCs, I'm assuming that's a benefit because you can reduce the amount of components on site. So that, that's been the natural progression. Obviously, with like micro um, processors getting ever smaller, you, you know, if you go to an old, old control panel that, you know, was wired 50, 60 years ago, it was all hardwired relays and contactors and stuff like that and we can literally turn all of those devices that would have to be managed um you know throughout their lifetime replaced etc into one plc so you'd pay more as an upfront cost because obviously relays are, are pence and to get someone to wire it is pencils also but at the same time a plc would be more expensive but you'd save a lot of space so in my um, really, really interesting life that I lead, 
Mm. And I'm not an anorak at all. But um, I watched this documentary on the uh, engineering of the London Underground. Yeah. And they're saying that there's this huge room. It was built in, I think, the 50s. And that has all these buttons, which you basically take out and you press, and it does all the controls. And I think what they were saying was that it could be converted to a PLC, and they're slowly changing all of that over. Mm-hmm. But I'm assuming that's the two ends of the scale. One of them, you get a laptop, and you can program all these parts in, which I suppose you've also got less failure as well. Yes and no. Yeah, there. I mean, it's a good point to raise if the plc fails you you lose everything why Whereas would the plc fail it might lose a power supply as soon as you lose a power supply you've lost it yeah but you'd have UPSs and stuff in surely yeah but then you've got to account for a ups and a, and a battery rack and whatever else you need to keep it running i mean i feel like i could do this now just uh, if you want to get me <laughs> on the underground <laughs> oh yeah sure all right here we yeah. go I've got my laptop, got me Dell. I'll get over there. You Dell. <laughs> me Dell. Get over there. Bit of ladder logic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm sure they probably are in the in the process of phasing that over, but the time factor in that will be switching over critical equipment that is supplied by those panels more likely than the actual issue of swapping it. Typically, what we did before at the company I work with, it was all mainly bespoke panels, so we never did typical arrangements it was always right we've got say x y and z in a in a brewery that we need to make work here's the philosophy of the system can you create and wire a panel to do that so a guy i know used to work in an abattoir he would say that similar things like the conveyor belts and the um without getting too graphics but like the guts cleaning systems and all that (laughs) That was all on a panel, so we'd have to maintain the feeds to it and that. And sometimes when the cleaners came in in the morning with the jet washes, they could trip stuff out through the water because of the jets and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, they'd have to reset these panels. So that would be a similar thing, wouldn't it? Because they'd have built-in timers and relays and contactors to make different parts of the machines come on at different times. Yep. I mean, that sounds like a bit of a flawed system, that if they've got push buttons on the front of a panel... And then they're jet washing it. Just put a cover over the panel. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd agree. But I wasn't there, was I? I couldn't hold the hand. I can't do it all. <laughs> oh, well, never mind. All the guts are on the floor. <laughs> yeah, it's not a job for the lighthearted, I imagine. What other sorts of control are there? So you obviously mentioned the ladder logic. You'd have code typically um and learning to write with code is a little bit more what sort in, of code talking about python c plus plus ada they're all types yeah java. Um, java. <laughs> yeah so they're all types of code they aren't the uh, most straightforward way of doing it if you typically end up doing a bit of ladder like i do it's drag and drop essentially you get a symbol you drop it in place and you, you, it's, it's kind of like you're almost drawing the system as you go rather than actually writing physical code of yeah. if X does this, make Y push to diff, you know, to zero sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, have you ever had an opportunity to do any codes or whilst you've been doing your boiler systems or anything like that? No, no. Okay. Right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. <laughs> no, no, I haven't. I um, again, it's it's interesting. It's something that you don't do every day, and I imagine sort of like boiler systems and stuff. If you're not doing them often, to come away and then go back into it, it takes a little bit of of relearning or you know remembering. It's um, it must be quite difficult keeping up with the technology as it moves, but it sounds like it's a good way to sort of get yourself out of certain problems. And as I said earlier, it sounds like a really good way to be able to integrate different systems together. Yeah, 100%. Fire, intruder, heating, ventilation, you know, your lighting systems. So if you've got a smart home, potentially you might, if you're really advanced, then you've got to even, you know, if it's got to the stage of having like a server cabinet or 
something like that, you might want a, a PLC to control the whole thing and be the brains. Who knows? It sort of sounds like, um, I mean, from a smart lighting perspective, I've done a Rayco course and that has drivers and dimming modules and stuff like that, but you can program them all to do stuff like that. So I'm assuming that is similar to a PLC. You have one input and you tell up to eight outputs per these units, these racks they're called, mm-hmm. and you say switch this on, dim it to this amount. If this button gets pressed, you do 30%, 40%, and 70% on these outputs. Yeah, no, definitely there'll be a, an element of logic and control associated with it, and you, there's obviously going to be a programming element as well. So I think that there is a probably a crossover point when something's very rudimentary and it's ones and zeros and goes into having a brain and becoming a PLC in terms of the processing power that it holds. But I, I would recommend if anyone's interested in this sort of thing, get out there. There's certainly you can buy 20 quid modules, plug it into this play, plug and go USB into your laptop and have a play. Is that sort of like what the um, Raspberry Pi and stuff like that would be? Arduino? Ra- no, Raspberry Pi isn't a PLC, but you could use it to be a PLC. So there are obviously lots of attachments that come for a Raspberry Pi that you can add on and create your own little world, you know, um, processing on that. But, yeah. Okay. So let's just visualize this control panel. So it doesn't have to be one circuit either, does it? So when you're doing your different forms, could you then segregate different circuits? So for maintenance, when you're working away, you could obviously isolate safely one area and leave other parts running is that something you'd do yeah so uh, same same as a distribution board it's the point where if you are going into a consumer unit let's say you are going to have to isolate the board or the whole lot sorry um to to enter into the uh, part where the exposed buzz bar is going to be now what if they put a compartment for the buzz bar and what if they put a compartment for the main switch that meant you didn't have to isolate that to go and deal with the the breakers. Like they're doing a three-phase board. Well, no, they don't do that on three-phase boards. Well, you get the little clip-on bit, didn't you? So that that's still a Form 1. Everything is still in the same enclosure. Right. There's no degree of separation there. So a Form 4, then, that sounds like something pretty, pretty big. So I'm... I'm visualising something I think you might have sent me before where it was like split into four compartments. So on the top right, you had your ELV, your bottom right, you had your LV, then you had a data section, bottom left, and then top left, you had a fibre part. So that doesn't sound like a Form 4. That sounds like a Form 2 because whilst you've got the varying different voltages and it's segregated, it's a, de- a degree of separation relating to like power and buzz bars. So form. So just remind me what a form four is again. Then it's internal separation of all units. So the buzz bar is different from the main switch, which is different from the outgoing circuits, which is different from the ingoing circuits. Exactly. So if you wanted to say look at the buzz bar, you'd have to take off a different cover to taking off the main switch cover or a. a sub circuit cover right okay and how would you fuse that normally would you normally is that why you'd have the little one three or sorry the 88-3 fuses sometimes in a section or would you go for a more rccb no well so panels can vary so the larger the size so you'll have you may have mccbs um molded case circuit breakers in some um when you get to you know, real large loads, uh, you might be looking at air circuit breakers. Um, yeah. Yeah, then from then on, typically most arrangements that you'll come across will be like the 88-2s in yeah. there. And you'll, you'll have a, a main switch, which might, you know, if you, sometimes I've seen lots of panels for generator facilities, they'll have air circuit breakers. Um, the problem you have when you start using air circuit breakers and molded case circuit breakers is the ZS um requirements are so low with them um and you end up having to tweak them to get discrimination but they come with the dials on the front to be able to do that variable setting ones aren't they exactly yeah so you end up having to tweak them and for me that's not a reliable way of 
of setting so up your, your could you distribution. Could you explain that a little better, please? In what regard, sorry? Well, obviously, we've opened it up. There's like some sort of buzz bar track running around. We've then come off that, fused it down for the obviously the outgoing circuit. But what about the ZS and all the rest of it? What issues have we got? Why is it the ZS industry? Obviously, because it's high current. So, so I, we're going to yeah, have so a very low ZS. But how would you get over that as an issue? So what, what, what I'm really talking about is not stuff external. I'm talking about the internal arrangement. So if you go with uh, a molded case circuit breaker as your incoming protective device, so a 60947-2, then it's going to be more difficult to get a discrimination with the next downstream device. Well, sure. You, would you not just come in at a bigger load? You would come in at a higher rating, but they still there's very minimal on high current and distribution circuits. There's very little between them in terms of like the incomer might actually be rated to say 0.14 and outgoing to 0.18. And then you have to account for the distribution systems that are supplying them. So you're saying for ADS, you need to make sure you're not blowing the main one over the secondary. Yep. And typically what will happen is is that's the case. So with 88-2s, you can't put those downstream of an MCCB because you will trip the... Because of the MCC. curve and that. Yeah, exactly. So what you tend to find is most go with the 88-2 so that you get the sufficient discrimination times between yeah. them. Cool. And yeah. you said it wasn't interesting. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. I think it's more interesting. I think it's most interesting. <laughs> Plus one. <laughs> and infinity. Um, all right, so we'll probably call that one there. But yeah, no. It's been emotional. Thank you for listening. Hope it was uh, informative to some. Thanks for listening, everyone. And goodbye. eat on the job there's a lot of green pepper on this and i don't mind but i just feel like it's not proportionally under control story time with pete come around children oh well i reckon i've got like three milliamps of dc here on this ear circuit
Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Hit the Lights. I'm, uh, I'm on house arrest. 